Talmud tells of Choni uh, Ma'agel bumping into an old man, and uh, he found him planting carob trees. And uh, he said, old man, you really think you're going to live uh, long enough to benefit from these trees? And he said, no, I found a world planted with carob trees, and I, I intend to leave a world planted with carob trees uh, for my descendants. That bit of mentality right there is a whole world. That old man who taught Choni HaMagel a lesson was focused on trees. He was focused on the future. He was focused on his descendants. He was focused on long-term. And he was focused on no specific mitzvah to plant a carob tree here or there. But he understood that there was a general responsibility to the world as a whole, even as an old man, to go out and at least preserve the world that we have. In our case, we've got to do better than the old man, which is that we have to actually undo damage. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The issue of climate change and protecting the environment is one of the most pressing issues in the world today, and at least anecdotally, it seems that many Orthodox Jews are behind the curve when it comes to taking it seriously. They likely have good reasons for this, including doubts about its reality, prioritizing other issues that appear more pressing or important, questions about the politics and political background of those who are at the forefront of calling for action, the assumption that nothing substantive can be done at all, and an ingrained tendency to work primarily on internal Jewish issues rather than on universal human concerns. Rabbi Barry Kornblau, however, is sounding the alarm, and he asserts that ignoring this oncoming freight train is both foolish and a violation of Torah norms. I'll speak with Rabbi Kornblau in just a moment, but first, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also, go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for the Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffeehouse. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Rabbi Barry Kornblau has been rabbi of Young Israel of Hollis Hills, Windsor Park, in Queens, New York, since 2003. For a dozen years, he served on the rabbinic staff 
of the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America. He has studied and taught about the intersection of Torah, science, and the environment in a variety of settings for two decades, most recently at Kanfei Nisharim and its successor, Grow Torah. Rabbi Barry Kornblau, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned in my introduction, the issue of climate change and environmental disaster in general often seems to be ignored, anecdotally, perhaps more than anecdotally, in the Orthodox world. So I'd like to ask you about that today, Rabbi Kornblau. But first, please tell me your personal story. How did you become dedicated to this cause of protecting the environment? I'm not sure that I would describe myself as dedicated to the cause. Um, That's too strong. I'm dedicated to Torah and God and all of that. Uh, But this is a part of my general dedication to those things, as I hope it will be for uh, all of the listeners here. Having said that, for me, my early childhood experiences were drawn heavily in the hard sciences, uh, specifically physics, and my father has a PhD in chemistry. Uh, That was the, uh, shall we say, avira intellectually in which I grew up. And uh, later on, as my uh, Torah studies advanced and I eventually uh, earned smicha and all of those sorts of things, uh, around that time, I would say 20-something-odd years ago, the general public began to take notice of uh, issues pertaining to the environment. I'm speaking in very rough terms here. Uh, it really began to make headlines, and uh, I began to focus on it from my general perspective as someone who's interested in the world of science and what's going on. Uh, and I quickly came to understand that the situation facing humanity as a whole uh, is very grave. Over time, I began to try to find out how that how that works and how it's heard and what people are doing in the Orthodox world. And I found in general that there was a very mixed, shall we say, reception to this kind of an issue in the Orthodox world. Mm-hmm. So I began my work. I said, okay, well, there's plenty of Torah around all of this, so let me get involved in the Torah, let me get involved in the science. Uh, and eventually, uh, I connected up with an organization which uh, no longer uh, exists, although, it website, although its website does, uh, called Kanfei Nishtarim, which was focused on the nexus of Torah science and the Orthodox community. I actually worked for it briefly uh, until it merged into an organization called Grow Torah. Grow Torah continues to work today here in the New Jersey area and uh, in modern Orthodox uh, schools, uh, primarily in the New York metro area, but also beyond, to help instill in young people enthusiasm and knowledge and connection to plants and bugs and growing things and gardens, uh, which is often very missing for uh, modern Orthodox and other youth Orthodox people who typically live in urban or suburban settings. For me, those aren't my strengths. Gardening is not my strength and thinking and so on is. And so I'm excited to be able to share some of the the broader issues and some of the practical things uh, as we'll eventually discuss uh, for people to do in their lives. In that case, Rabbi Kornblau, before we get to specific Torah sources or what Torah Jews should do, can you first just outline in brief terms the reality of the situation which the planet is facing? Our uh, home here on Earth, as one can read literally in the headlines, uh, day after day, month after month, year after year, is in dire stress. Uh, That stress is manifest in air, sea, and land, and uh, that distress is caused uh, overwhelmingly by human action, which has been identified uh, by scientists in in quite unambiguous terms 
And the magnitude of the changes are enormous. The future magnitude of changes uh, are also enormous. Uh, and the urgency of uh, world organizations, uh, scientists and others about all of these things has been ongoing uh, now for uh, quite some time. Particularly concerning to think about the area which scientists identify as tipping points, which is certain environmental changes, which once they happen, you can't really rewind the clock on them. And uh, we're seeing uh, some of them uh, take place. So let's just pick on a few, shall we say, hotspots. Yeah, please. Uh, the Pacific Northwest and uh, other places which are typically quite chilly. There have been fires and there have been exceedingly hot temperatures. And in general, that's true. At the poles, uh, global warming has been much greater consequence. One might think that doesn't matter, but it does hugely because those rising temperatures melt ice, which then creates, uh, if the ice is not already in the sea, creates rising sea levels. Uh, it also changes the temperature and salinity of the ocean, which changes ocean currents, which changes life in the oceans, which changes weather and uh, many other sorts of things. Uh, additionally, all of that burning and fire creates, yeah, at the most basic level, a health hazard uh, to people, which, is in which, uh, which it affects. Um, but even more crucially, it creates a feedback cycle that's quite negative. So uh, once the permafrost, say, let's say in Siberia, begins to melt, then it melts ever more rapidly as, it, as its color becomes darker. Uh, and then as it melts, it, release, it releases methane and other gases into the atmosphere, which, are, uh, which create more warming, which create more melting, and so on and so forth. And those are the kinds of uh, negative feedback cycles which are really so bad, and we see them uh, on Earth. We see them in the incredible melting of Greenland's uh, glaciers, um, which are which is uh, eight times uh, what it used to be uh, just a few decades ago. We see it in the dramatic changes in, the Ant in, in Antarctica. And of course, we see it in uh, the burning of our uh, own countries. We see river floods in Germany and uh, tremendous fires in Australia. In the West, there's a multi-year drought here in the United States and so on and so forth, where whenever one turns to the Amazon, which is now turned from a carbon sink, uh, that is to say an area which um, overall absorbs more carbon dioxide from the uh, atmosphere than it emits uh, due to deforestation driven largely by the need for timber and uh, grazing area for beef cattle and other concerns. We've seen that the uh, Amazon as a whole, due to, due to astonishing measurements recently made by scientists, is now switching from being part of the solution to being part of the problem, which is just incredible. So whenever one goes, uh, one sees tremendous changes uh, in Earth's biosphere, that is to say the entire area which supports life for all of humanity here on Earth. Uh, it affects all of us, a biodiversity as well. Uh, the number of species which have been eliminated directly or indirectly by all these changes is huge. Migrations to animals from different places, uh, the insect population has dropped enormously and we are, whether we realize it or not, hugely dependent on uh, a robust uh, insect population throughout uh, the entire biosphere to get food and so on. So one can go on, but the crises are multiple, simultaneous, and grave, and they're not really subject to any consequential dispute. I mean, there's always dispute in science. Uh, that's the way science rolls as it refines things ever more clearly. But uh, these are areas of the hard sciences. These are not humanities. These are not social sciences. 
And fundamentally, we're speaking about the world of measurement and um, attribution and so on and so forth. Well, in that case, I'd like to ask you a question about that, simply because there are people who are not climate change deniers. They're not denying human involvement in climate change. However, I have heard some serious people argue that there are always doomsday scenarios or tipping points that we've been told in the past that in X number of years, the following will happen. And even though things may be getting worse these people might argue that the alarmist attitude saying that the human population will be wiped out or whatever in X number of years, repeatedly these claims have been made, these predictions have been made and have not come to fruition. And they would say it's not that climate change isn't a problem, but it might be overstated in terms of the speed at which it's happening. How would you answer that? That's interesting. The Scientific American ran a column uh, a short while ago, I, I forget, maybe it was a year or two ago. Uh, where they uh, studied the uh, predictions of climate scientists across a variety of areas to see how they compared to what actually happened. And the upshot of that study was that, broadly speaking, uh, the scientific predictions underestimated what was likely to be happening going forward. And the reasons for that are cultural uh, and relating to the scientific method. And that is to say that scientists are, I think, in terms of science, so they think about uh, being conservative, lowercase c, and not overstating what their data can support. They want to make sure they say things that are wholly founded and so on. Uh, and, in, and in their uh, understandable professional caution, they've uh, over time actually underestimated things. Having said that, another fascinating study happened about scientific modeling and so on and predictions, which essentially took the crudest uh, initial global warming models, which had been put together uh, already many, many decades ago, and compared them to what current models are, produ are predicting with uh, far more inputs and so on. And guess what? There were certainly details here and there which differed, but overall, uh, the early models got the major trends right. And that's because the basic science here really isn't that complicated. Once you keep on inserting carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, the greenhouse effect of uh, the Earth's atmosphere means that it retains more heat. That heat is going to play out. It's going to warm the oceans. It's going to warm the air. It's going to melt the ice and do all those other things with all of the follow-on effects which they create. So this kind of, shall we say, uh, over-intellectualized skepticism generally is not found to be true in terms of the way science actually proceeds. Let's move on to some Torah sources that discuss this. I bet many of our listeners would be surprised that the Torah has anything to say, anything significant to say about climate change, but I think you're going to argue that the Torah does have a lot to say about this particular issue. The general field of ecology, as it once upon a time was known uh, in the 1960s, in the wake of that time period, most uh, major modern Orthodox thinkers, or many, have uh, addressed this in, in, in different ways that are uh, quite comprehensive. So you shouldn't think that it's me talking. Already in uh, the 1970s, uh, Rabbi Arya Carmel published an essay entitled Judaism and the Quality of the Environment. Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb has written about this uh, Rabbi, in more recent years, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. A number of uh, prominent rabbis in Israel recently put out a, state, a statement about it. Uh, even Rav Cook wrote about it in his own way uh, nearly a century ago, and uh, more specifically, Rabbi Shimshon of Hirsch, in his uh, massive commentary to the Torah, as well as his other writings, clearly had a very well-articulated view of the relationship between God, man, uh, and the natural world. And uh, these sources are collected in all sorts of books which have been written, 
and are available in their primary form as well. In addition to all of those kind of hashkafic and, and broad essays, there are halachic sources uh, as well, uh, which speak to some of the issues at play. That's uh, an introduction. Okay, can you give some details, perhaps, about some of the halachic sources? Sure. Uh, one of the most familiar areas that uh, is widely invoked by uh, Orthodox thinkers and other, Jew- and other Jews who think about environmental issues is the prohibition of baltashchit, not to destroy things. So from a normative perspective, Baal Tashchit is an important mitzvah, the prohibition of not to destroy things or waste things and so on. But from a normative perspective, it is governed by uh, the anthropocentric view of halacha, which is to say that uh, it's overridden in the case of human need. And human need is, broadly speaking, uh, understood, well, broadly. Uh, and that is, you know, if you need the room, if you need this, if you don't need it anymore, you can uh, discard things and so on. So at some level, it's not a great idea to think about Baal Tashkit as a driver of not destroying, you know, to fulfill the, mo- the traditional motto of reduce, reuse, and recycle. At some level, it doesn't work. But when one thinks about it a little bit more deeply, uh, one discovers that there are voices which understood that this wasn't merely a technical, pro- a technical halachic thing, uh, issue, but one uh, which had a uh, hashkafic component to it uh, and was trying to get across an idea. The most famous of those sources is the Tzifra Achinuch uh, in his discussion of the prohibition. And there he uh, talks about how pious people are careful uh, with all the objects which the Rebbe Shalom has uh, granted them, which God has granted them. And they're uh, careful even with a single mustard seed. Uh, to not waste it. And the people who uh, don't have this attitude are the people who are destroyers of the world uh, whom God will repay suitably. And uh, that particular example which uh, he gives, which is to not waste a single mustard seed, turns out to be of extraordinary consequence in the contemporary world. There's a well-known website uh, to jump from the Torah source to immediate application for one second. Uh, which you can go look up on the web called drawdown.org. And it represents the effort of dozens upon dozens of engineers and scientists and uh, others to try to figure out uh, of all of the different sorts of things that human civilization engages in, all the different areas, what are the changes which are likely to have the greatest impact uh, on reducing carbon dioxide and methane emissions in the environment over a short period of time to draw us down to pre-industrial levels uh, as rapidly as possible. And it turns out that according to pretty much, no matter what scenario they, they take into account for how human beings will behave in the political sense, in the individual sense, and so on, at the very top of the list, number two or three, I forget exactly what number, is reduction of food waste. And reduction of food waste, we tend to think of as being something that happens along the production chain, that food gets left in the field or it rots in uh, storage silos or it gets ruined in refrigerators or gets thrown out in the supermarket and so on. And the truth is that in some parts of the world, particularly poor and less developed areas of the world, uh, that's true. Um, there is tremendous loss uh, along the way before it ever gets to uh, the individual eater. And so uh, in that area, Israel is actually working. Uh, one of its many innovations in the area of green technology is to improve that and reduce that kind of waste uh, in those societies. However, where most of uh, our listeners live is in rich industrialized countries. Uh, and in rich industrialized countries, it turns out that the vast majority of food waste occurs uh, at the consumer's table. Uh, and in their kitchen and so on. 
the collective impact of uh, all of our wasting those precious mustard seeds turns out to be huge. And among the most consequential things that need to be done to improve the environment and can only be done by individuals. It has to be done by kitchen by kitchen, institution by institution, among the rich wealth industrial countries where the vast majority of Jews live. The need to focus on eating one's leftovers, uh, only purchasing food that one needs, and uh, menu planning, all those things, mundane, very practical things that we have to do anyway, turned out to be a huge driver of emissions because of all of the energy and resources that are devoted to creating that food and bringing it to you uh, at your table and so on. Similarly, in parallel is uh, the issue of beef uh, consumption. Uh, we say, and it's true that uh, nothing makes uh, for a joyous occasion like drink and uh, a nice piece of steak. Right. Having said that, beef production and consumption, uh, it chews up an enormous amount of land and resources and energy, as well as creating an enormous amount of methane. And uh, one of the most important things that we can do is to uh, reduce our beef con consumption as significantly as possible. Uh, right now, it's common in Orthodox homes to have two meat dishes at every Shabbos meal. Often one of them is beef, and then to often have meat meals as well as many Americans do and others uh, during the week. That level of meat consumption, particularly in the wealthy West, including the United States, Israel, and, and most places where your listeners live, is also on the very tippy top of the list uh, that only individuals can do. And uh, we, our traditions um, are clearly look uh, somewhat askance at uh, meat, meat consumption. On the one hand, clearly, uh, as we read in Chumash Devarim in a few weeks, and we read, excuse me, in Sefer Vayikra, Basar uh, Ta'ava, it's permitted to have non-sacrificial uh, meat, and we do it all the time. There's an entire tractate of Talmud called Masechet Chulin and Yeradeya, which governs all the rules consuming that meat. But how often should we be eating that meat? Not so often. Uh, and uh, in pre-modern times, uh, the kinds of meat consumption that we do was unheard of, and uh, we really need to ratchet it back. Well, Rabbi Kornblau, I want to ask you about a few things regarding this. The first one, though, is almost a sense of yeush, of giving up, of saying, what's the point? Because speaking on a psychological level, it's one thing if I reduce my meat intake because I realize it might be bad for my heart health, where I can see immediate benefit to myself. On the other hand, when you say that every single kitchen has to be involved in doing this, and we see that our neighbors aren't doing it, and there are hundreds of millions of people who are not doing it, why should I, I'm not speaking from a halachic level, I'm speaking psychologically, be so concerned that I'm going to now make my life more difficult when it's going to be hard to get anything done? I would say the amount that I'm doing is not significant compared to everybody else, and unless everybody joins in together, it's not going to happen. I realize on a moral level that's not such a good argument, but I see the problem from a mental perspective why somebody might be reluctant to start making sacrifices financially, sacrifices practically in his life or her life, when I say things are going to go bad anyway, and no one else is doing this, or at least a lot of people aren't doing it, not enough people are doing it. Why should I be the person who's the friar? so to speak. Our, our tradition speaks uh, in terms of obligations. Uh, it doesn't... <laughs> one of the advantages of our tradition uh, is that we speak about the chiyuvim, what are our duties, not are our rights or the stuff that we can get away with. Um, and that general attitude of, well, what can I get away with because the other guy isn't, is, isn't, do, isn't pulling his weight 
is exactly the mentality which needs to be reversed on a global scale, beginning with individuals and with locales and with governments and nations and everybody uh, to get to pull ourselves back. So I just have to identify that mode of thinking as it itself as part of the problem. Having said that, uh, many of the other things you said along the way aren't true. You'll actually save money by dramatically reducing the amount of meat that uh, is eaten, um, and you'll eat more healthily and um, and more tastily in, man- in many cases. We've long ago uh, shifted our menus away from these kinds of things, and uh, Baruch Hashem, uh, we still eat great food and uh, all is well. We're not vegetarians, but we restrict these sorts of things to very special occasions. Okay, let's move on to a different question then, Rabbi Kornblau. Given everything you've said, you've convincingly argued that Orthodox Jews need to care about the environment, I would say more than they currently do. I use the term they advisedly. Obviously, there are some who are very concerned, but as I mentioned in my introduction, I think there are many people in the Orthodox world who simply do not see this as something which matters to them, or even if it does matter to them, not something which they're obligated to do anything about, as you just mentioned. It's not a chiyuv, not an obligation for them. My first question is this. If you agree that that's true, that this is a problem in the Orthodox community, perhaps among other communities as well, what is the source of that being a problem, given that there are Torah sources which say that we have to be careful? Well, in the context of a podcast, which is not a shiur, uh, I've touched lightly on Torah sources, but uh, there there are many others, and um, I'm being a misakim, I'm just summarizing here uh, in, in in a broad way. To address your question, so I'm quite familiar with those things. I've been hearing them for many years. Let's run through uh, some of them. Okay. Um, uh, Making changes in general is for all people hard. Making changes in the context of a traditional society is harder. Making uh, changes in a traditional society, which uh, often looks backwards for its models of how to live, or looks backwards rather selectively in its models how to live, is harder yet. Uh, We think being conservative, lowercase c, in the sense of societal change is a good thing, broadly speaking, and that's a common attitude uh, among Orthodox Jews. The result of that is that to have a group, pretty much all of the world scientists uh, coming together and making clear that not only are changes necessary, but large changes are necessary. So uh, the frame that a lot of uh, Orthodox Jews experience that in is, oh, it's another religion. Caring about all these things is a new religion, and I'm not going to do it. Uh, there was a popular podcast where uh, someone who was uh, attempting to represent a positive view of environmentalism dismissed, oh, those green environmentalists with all their Priuses. Any orthodox presentations about the environment assume that somehow or other there's a new religion out there, and so I want to make it clear that I'm not, I'm not doing a new religion. And indeed, my opening comment to you made that point uh, as well. Very much so. It's certainly true that there are those who have indeed concern about the environment into the whole or the overwhelming majority of uh, what drives them in the world. And that clearly can't be the perspective of a Torah Jew. Uh, And there are definitely those who have taken these kinds of secular points of view to extremes, deifying uh, nature, deeming man and uh, his activities uh, to be as naught dulling the lines between humanity, animals, and so on and so forth. We are wise to avoid such extremes, but just because they're extremes doesn't mean that the more moderate position uh, isn't true. There are a lot of other 
sociological realities um, which uh, drive orthodox uh, suspicion and concern. Uh, one is a, particularly in the Ashkenazi world, which I know, uh, there is a suspicion uh, culturally of governments and government action. And indeed, uh, to resolve some, many of these issues, um, in addition to the individual actions, which I've highlighted, which are critical, uh, governmental and policy actions are needed. And for, for many uh, Orthodox Jews who are small government conservatives, their contemporary political, political ideology uh, matches their uh, Orthodox uh, history of the czars and the government or the bad guys. And so uh, those come together in a toxic brew uh, to make suspicion where really uh, it's not appropriate in certain circumstances. Others who are uh, overly intellectualized and uh, are too suspicious of experts, and that, that turns into kind of a, oh, I know better than all the scientists, I know better than all the virologists, I know better than all the infectious disease experts, and uh, we get the kind of science uh, denialism in this area, which we got also in the area of the pandemic. We also have other obstacles in our tradition which get in the way. The shot of Humash suggests that the world is 57, some hundred, 57, 80, whatever it is, years old. That in turn creates literalist readings of Genesis regarding the age of the universe, regarding um, denial of evolution, regarding uh, the dominion of man over mm -hmm. all of nature and unbridled uh, ability to do whatever one wants. And that in turn drives suspicion of science, uh, including the hard sciences as a whole. There's also specifically in the area of climate change, God's promise uh, towards the end of Parshat Noah uh, not to bring a flood again. And many Orthodox writers are fond of quoting that uh, as if it's definitive. And obviously the sea levels really can't rise and we really can't have problems. So um, the Tosefta cites views like that, uh, and the Talmud does as well, and explicitly rejects them as being uh, not the Torah's point of view, uh, and uh, suggests that God has many ways of destroying, uh, of, of, bringing, of wreaking destruction upon humanity, uh, one of which is rising seas, and uh, which can uh, damage whole countries, locales, and so on and so forth. Verses and ideas and cultural things which are all floating around, uh, which aren't really proper. There's a, another broad spiritual issue, which is that we tend to consider uh, religion as a spiritual undertaking. It's about God uh, and coming close to God. And uh, in many Kabbalistic readings of our tradition, what we're doing down here is merely a tikkun for things that are going on in spiritual worlds above us. That mode of thinking uh, vastly uh, uh, diminishes the consequence of sources and ideas which uh, suggest that our human actions here impact the physical world around us. And that's a hashkafic uh, obstacle as well. There's a lot of other problems too. Um, well, let me ask you about one of them. Do you think it's possible that the, I don't know how recent it is, but the increasing movement towards the Republican Party among Orthodox Jews, among many segments of Orthodox Jewry, might be contributing to it as well. I don't want to talk politics. That's not my goal here. And I don't want to bash either party right now. That really isn't the point of this podcast. However, I think it's not, I'm not saying anything that people will deny by saying that in general, the, the Republican Party, Republican politicians have been less enamored with doing things about climate change than the Democrats. And if Orthodox Jews are increasingly becoming Republican, perhaps that's a contributing factor as well. Oh, that's certainly true. But even within the world of American conservative politics, it's notable that uh, younger conservatives and younger Republicans and so on, who realize that it's literally their earth which is changing before them, and they're going to have to live here, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they are increasingly dissenting from uh, the views of their elders. That's true in the evangelical community, in the evangelical conservative community. It's true within the Republican Party. And many older, uh, shall we say, conservatives remember that once upon a time, the Republican Party was the, was the party of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who established the national park system and was quite concerned uh, for the pre- pre- preservation of the environment uh, in very physical ways that we also benefit from today. Um, so those are definitely true. It must be true, though, that as Torah Jews, um, that we need to disentangle our understanding of what is the right thing to do from whatever our political parties are. Uh, the idea that I'm just going to sign up for a whole you know, pot of views. I'm either on team A or team B. And since my team uh, votes this way, I'm going to vote that way too. That can't be the way of the Torah Jew, particularly on, on issues of great consequence like this. My next question is about priorities. You have, I think, very convincingly demonstrated that this should be a priority. However, there are many things that should be priorities. And in the Orthodox world, people will list things that matter to them that really need to be taken care of. And these really are authentic problems in the world that need to be dealt with. I understand that when we are speaking about meat consumption or about anything else that involves the individual, the fact that it's a priority or not a priority shouldn't affect anything because it's not occupying so much mental space, at least in principle. At the same time, a rabbi who gets up at the pulpit on Shabbos and has to decide what he's going to talk about, there are only so many things that people, his congregation or a teacher, his students can hold in their minds as something which really is worthy of their time and their mental energy and their physical energy as well. How can we convince Orthodox Jews? How would you suggest that Orthodox Jews be convinced that this should be one of the priorities that should occupy that small space that they have? I I certainly agree um, that people have limited mental bandwidth and time and energy and so on. Uh, Many of the practical things which I'm mentioning uh, are things which you got to do anyway. So one way or another, let's say here in New York State, you have to have electricity coming into your home because that's the way the world is. So um, it takes around a half hour or so, maybe less, to uh, switch the source of one's electricity away from the general Con Ed lines uh, to one of the uh, green power sources, which will then become the source of electricity for your home. Uh, That doesn't require putting solar panels on your roof. It requires uh, taking advantage of solar panels and wind power, et cetera, that's available elsewhere that doesn't involve the burning of fossil fuels, the resulting carbon dioxide emissions, and so on. That's not a huge uh, ask, and uh, it's one that's very straightforward and that Con Ed makes easy. Uh, that's true as well as at our, at our workplaces and other places where we have a say over where electricity supplies takes place. Not wasting food, I mean, it's like you're saving money, and it's literally the mitzvah that I mentioned not eating meat is um, also saves money, improves your health, and improves the world. It's easy reducing it, not, not eliminating it. Similarly, in terms of getting a car, people got to get cars. The, the car market's changing rapidly. And uh, once you're getting a car, just to focus on mileage is a big priority and to focus on making sure that it's at least a hybrid, if not an electric vehicle at this point, is uh, really an important thing to do. If there's a dollars and cents trade-off, then okay. So then everyone's got to make their cheshbonot, but everyone's got to do their share. That leads me to a final set of questions, which is about how do we change that larger attitude? How do rabbis, influencers, people who have a voice convince people in the Orthodox world to actually start changing? Like, is it a matter of giving more shiurim about about the importance that, as, from a Torah perspective? 
Should we speak about the human societal level? Is it important to talk about it from a scientific level? How can we affect change in such a way that people will be convinced? Obviously, that's a $64,000 question. How do you convince somebody of anything? That's the question in sales. That's the question that a rabbi has as well. But I want your opinion, Rabbi Kornblow. How do you think, what do you think is the right methodology for convincing our communities that this should be at the top of their priority list? One of the things that really does matter. I think that there's a lot of moving parts to that uh, answer. Uh, one of them is to focus on the younger generation, which Groto, or the organization I mentioned uh, earlier, does. And that trickles up to the parents and, and into communities, and I think it's a great thing. Another area is indeed to speak about things. I arrived at my present shul here in Queens in 2003, and um, I think the very first year that I was here, I made uh, climate change the topic of my, I think, first or second Rosh Hashanah address. It is, a, it is a, an issue that literally is a humanity issue. Uh, Rosh Hashanah focuses not only on the Jewish people, but on all the universal aspects of our concern for humanity as a whole. And uh, there was then nothing greater, and today even more so, nothing greater that, that we need to focus on in a very practical way. We have to expand the circles of our caring. It's natural in our community uh, for historical and cultural and religious reasons to focus on ourselves. We Orthodox Jews have great communities. We have great chesed and all sorts of other uh, stuff. And uh, we have rich communal lives and Baruch Hashem. Having said that, it's quite natural for many and not so natural for others to extend that chesed and kindness and caring uh, beyond our own circle uh, into greater circles. Rav Kook uh, wrote a very beautiful poem called the Shir Merubah, um, where he talks about a fourfold song. There's the person who finds satisfaction in uh, the development of his own soul. There's another person who finds satisfaction uh, not only in that, but needs to expand concern about uh, the Jewish people. There is yet another person whose concern extends to all of humanity, and yet another level, the fourth level, the person whose uh, concern extends to uh, all of creation and tries to understand godliness um, uh, in everything and everywhere. And he says the uh, Shira Shirim, the Shira, which is made up of all of these songs, is the wholly integrated person who incorporates all of these different aspects into his spiritual and practical life. Uh, and that is uh, the model that he is uh, sharing with us in terms of how we think and how we value things. And uh, I think sometimes Orthodox rabbis are good at speaking about relationships and families and community and things like this. And to some extent, uh, these issues can fit in there. But I do think that expanding the portfolio and palette, shall we say, uh, of the kinds of topics which uh, in general rabbis are comfortable speaking about uh, to their communities um, will over time impact those communities. And rabbis uh, have to have the confidence uh, of their science and of their Torah, which I'm happy to share with them privately or in shiurim or as a guest scholar or whatever the case might be, uh, to bring these topics up over and over again from a broad moral perspective. The Talmud tells of Choni uh, Amagel bumping into an old man and uh, he found him planting carob trees. And uh, he said, old man, you really think you're going to live uh, long enough to benefit from these trees? And he said, no. I found a world planted with carob trees, and I, I intend to leave a world planted with carob trees uh, for my descendants. That bit of mentality right there is a whole world. That old man who taught Choni Hamagel a lesson was focused on trees. He was focused on the future. 
he was focused on his descendants, he was focused on long term, and he was focused on no specific mitzvah to plant a carob tree here or there, but he understood that there was a general responsibility to the world as a whole, even as an old man, to go out and at least preserve the world that we have. In our case, we've got to do better than the old man, which is that we have to actually undo damage uh, for the, from, of the past uh, many decades, particularly since the 1950s, but throughout the much of the Industrial Revolution in the past 150, 200 years, we've got to make the world better than it was. And uh, it's our kids who are sitting with us today uh, that we care about and who know that this is the world they're inheriting. What do we want to give them? What kind of legacy do we want to leave behind? Do you think it's actually possible, leaving aside obligation, which we must do something regardless of what the results are, do you think there's still time if we work together to do this or are there too many people who are not interested, too many industries and others who have vested interests against this that is it a fool's errand or is there actual potential for things to change? Just a, a brief note about the Orthodox community. Uh, one of my colleagues in Kanfei Nisharim did a study about attitudes towards the environment and found that there were lots of Orthodox Jews who already care, Baruch Hashem. But more recently, uh, Nishma Research did a, a study of voters and found that for many Orthodox voters who voted Democratic, climate issues were among the very top of their concerns. And so broadly speaking, there are already lots and lots of Orthodox Jews who are engaged uh, with these issues, and certainly the rest of the Jewish community and, and much of the rest of the, of the world, including most notably Israel. In Israel and uh, elsewhere where climate and so on is not politicized and where they're not living an exilic existence, divorced uh, mentally, spiritually, and in other ways from the land, uh, taking to Yulim, connecting to nature, and caring about it, because guess what? It's my country, I live here, and I live in the Middle East, and it's heating up more rapidly than the rest of the earth, and it's we who are suffering through the heat, and it's our old people who are dying, and it's our species who are dying off, and it's our water that's no longer available, and it's our neighbors who are going to war uh, because uh, they don't have sufficient resources, and so they're engaging in civil war, which oopsie-daisy spills over and causes problems for us. These are things which just, you gotta do them. And Baruch Hashem, lots of people are already engaged uh, in focusing on these things. And uh, we got we to gotta go, go, go. Are there always going to be people left behind? Sure. Is everyone going to get a vaccination? No. Does that reduce the obligation of people who, who know what's going on to act and to act responsibly and, and vigorously? Not in the least. You got to go. And we all got to go. We all got to advance forward towards that vision of Rob Cook and towards our duties as, as people, as Jews, and as living on the only slice of the world that we have, which is the biosphere here on Earth. Hopefully people will take this to heart and will make important changes. Hopefully the Orthodox community as a whole, the communities we have, the communities in which we live, will understand the importance of this. And Rabbi Kornblau, I thank you for your leadership on this particular matter, as well as for joining me today on the podcast. Okay, thank you so much for having me, and uh, I look forward to following up with anybody who may be interested in contacting me. Uh, as I said, uh, in a podcast like this, detailed Torah sources aren't really what it's about, uh, but uh, there are lots of them, and I'm happy to share uh, the details of the science and the Torah with others. Contact me at rabbikornblau at gmail.com or on the whatever information you provide. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Kornblau. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.